0: I'm not giving you any time to think, Bracken. The red light has come on. Prime Day took me down a rabbit hole, Kirk.
1: Oh boy, what'd you buy? I bought a couple things. I got a pair of underwear. Ooh, you convinced me. I went with briefs, not with the the boxer brief style, because those just look too long to me. I'm always curious what you're wearing under those pants, Bracken. So it's good to know. Now, right now, in this moment, nothing. I'm waiting on my underwear.
0: There's <laughs> not a pair of underwear in sight right now.
1: None. I got a pair of Craft Greatness 3-inch compressive boxer briefs, Ooh. and I ordered a pair of, I'm blanking, another pair of running underwear. So I have three different brands coming in. Is mm. it officio, the give and go boxer brief?
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah,
1: but more of like the the brief cut of that.
0: You'll have to do your field tests and then let the people know so they can just yeah. go right to the best product.
1: I will. I'll give yeah. four breakdowns of my my running lingerie. Yeah, is that all you bought? No 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 so so that that's where I started because I have the list of things like I know I need. I'm coming up to the end of the life cycle on my running briefs. Mm. but I'm set on shorts. I'm set on tops, I'm set on pants. I, I don't need any more of those things and I'm pretty much set on shoes, but gear it was lacking a little bit. I did a, a two- hour run last weekend with my buddy Ross. Who is testing out stuff for his ultra? And I'm—I think I've made the decision, pending our race sim day next Saturday, where we're going to spend four hours on feet and test out gear and nutrition. Oh wow! I think I'm going to do it with him. I'm going to do the ultra with him.
0: <laughs> when is this ultra, Bracken? December fifth. Uh, I'm not your coach, but if you had a coach, would your coach advise you to do that? Well,
1: I think so. Really? Because a, I'm going to do it with him. I'm not going to race it. Yeah, you faster than him. He, This is his first trail race he's ever done in his life. Okay. This is a guy who, on paper, is faster than me. As a sophomore in high school, he ran 49.1, I think, indoor in a 400. Woo. And then outdoor, he ran 1.800. He ran 159 and never ran track again. He used a college uh, running back. Okay. So he's coming down from 240 down to ultra. Got so it. anyways, our paces are very different right now. But the other thing is it's a one-mile loop that you do as many times as you can for six hours. So you, you can pull the plug at any time. You can rest laps while someone else goes, but I I'd la- I think I'm gonna go down there and, and crew him.
0: Well, now that crew him, AKA run with him. Yeah. I actually approve. If that's a one mile looped situation where mm-hmm. you can bow out at any point without being stuck and forced to run back. Correct. I believe that would be the, I still don't think running 31 miles is smart. However. Oh, it's, it's a time. It's how many loops you can do in six hours. Okay. I thought it was a 50K. I I think I just made that up, but um, all right, you're in.
1: Yeah. So anyways, I took my my old, we had talked about packs. I took my Salomon S-Lab. I think it's a two set. One of their first models they ever made. It's one size too small for me, especially in my current condition.
0: Because you're so manly and mean. Well, I bought it
1: when I was in Colorado and I was 10 pounds lighter when I was living at altitude running big mileage. So it rubbed, it chafed. I got... And I've never heard of the Solomon packs chafing, but I had some chafage mm-hmm. going. So I've been looking at other packs and looking, and I found what appears to be a Solomon knockoff brand. Okay. And I couldn't find any reviews on that specific pack, but they have reviews on their other Solomon knockoffs, and people are generally supportive of it. So I bought a twenty-nine dollars S Lab <laughs> knockoff. Hydration best. <laughs> Twenty nine bucks. What now, you could do? pay thirty five and get two soft flasks. We already have those. But I mean, that's actually a really good deal. Six more bucks for two soft flasks. But um, I was going pure cheap, minimal investment in case this thing's trash. And if it is trash, I think it's fine. I can bike with it and use it to like stash my keys and phone and stuff.
0: Twenty nine I mean, bucks. You spend that on dinner some nights.
1: Spend that on 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 shaving cream each week. There you go. Anything else you buy? Nothing exciting. But anyways, I have a knockoff hydration pack coming and I'm going to be testing it out and then I'll give the good listeners my review. Is it worth saving $120 to get that pack? The answer is probably going to be no, but it might last me for a little bit.
0: That's a pretty safe prime day, man. You probably spent like a hundred bucks. Less. Yeah. I would say, I would well, say rab, rabbit hole. I don't know if I'd call it a rabbit hole. I think you did good. Thank you. Did you do anything? No, no. I worked all day and I peruse any shopping i have everything i want i'm one of those guys who doesn't look for sales i don't take my time it's not my time is money bracken and i'm not worth waiting around or shopping around i go there i buy it with cash and i leave or i order it because i'm thinking of it uh i've done that my whole life i bought my truck in cash i just showed up i'm like can i just give you all the money for it like right now and the guy's like what and i'm like yeah i just want, to, I just want my car now like i just want to pay it i don't worry like that's how i do life so anyways okay. I have probably spent way too much money that I could have saved uh, on deals. So Prime Day and me just didn't uh,
1: do it this year. See, when I have that in the moment, this is what I want. I add it to a list,
0: oh, and no, then I,
1: I, I research and watch and research and watch, and then I pull the trigger at the right time.
0: Nah, I just can't. Well, I can't. You're emotional. busy,
1: Matt. You're you're busier than I am.
0: I don't know about that.
1: And um, you're wealthier.
0: I don't know about that either. Um, I do. You may you may notice, folks, that we don't have a guest today. And that's for a reason. It's for a reason because the start of the conversation I was having with Bracken about how I have a fascination with Spartan of old before I found the sport, which was 2016. And it seems like Spartan of old was like barbaric. It was like no rules. People were dying on race courses, asked to do crazy things. It was a lot different back then, I believe. And I have this fascination with it that I just wish I was a part of it, and I wasn't. And I thought it would be fun to start today by taking a dive back into the Spartan of old as we got Father Time over here bracken. (laughs) Father Time. OG of the sport, Grizzly Man Bracken. Um, And I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about Spartan of old, and then we thought maybe we'd dive into sharing some race stories, funny moments, fails, anything else like that uh, that comes up along the way. But – that's our episode today folks. Bracken is kind of our guest
1: more than anything. There's nothing I like more than a good race story. So if we can spend the next 90 minutes or so just trading race stories, I'm going to be a happy man.
0: And I hope the listener will be happy as well. So, Bracken, let's just let's just jump into this. So, I want you to take me back to the beginning. What year what year did you hop into the sport?
1: 2011.
0: 2011. Yes. Most of our listeners were probably like still in middle school, high school, never knew the sport existed. I did not either. Well, tell me how you, how were you made of, aware of a, a race that hadn't established itself yet in 2011?
1: A buddy of mine convinced me to sign up for it. He had been injured training and I've told the story before, but I had tilted mm-hmm. him into going to that training run and he needed a reason to rehab from an ACL and he found Spartan Race and signed up for it. We had been college track teammates and we knew we could run and we had always been the two strongest distance runners on the team. Every mm-hmm. year we did our testing and we always were one, two on it. And we always thought there's gotta be a better use for this cause it's not really helping us on the track. And he saw it, thought it'd be perfect. I saw it, thought it looked super dumb.
0: <laughs> you did, you thought it looked dumb. Were yeah. you, when you did your college testing would it be like max pull-ups, max push-ups, like that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah. And then we did power clean, bench press, squat, deadlift. We did 30 yard dash, standing three jump, overhead shot, put throw, uh, cone drill. It was like a, a combine.
0: What were your numbers back in college? Like max squat, bench, all that mm. stuff. What were you rolling out? I, I'm curious.
1: I don't think we ever maxed the distance runners. We never maxed on squat and deadlift the way everyone else did because we always did it after a, a workout session. So, we'd oh, come okay. in from intervals and have to do that. So, I could always, I think I cleaned, I want to say 206.
0: 206. Where are you getting um, what kind of bar and weight set? I mean, with,
1: with, with, with key, we only had kilos. So we didn't have weights. And, and so oh, it came okay. out to right around there. Okay. Um, but, it, but maybe it was like 186. It was right in that range. I don't remember because there's different years. 20
0: pound difference. No big deal. And no. then
1: probably 235, 245 on bench. 20 high right, right around 25 30 strict pull-ups
0: okay pretty pretty strong i mean for distance i remember guys when we did our fitness testing a couple of the teammates would just get on the bar and hang and couldn't yeah. do one pull-up i mean a college athlete high end couldn't do a single pull-up i was one of the ones that were doing like 20 25 maybe at that time mm-hmm. but um it's pretty sad isn't it yeah and we lifted at whitewater yeah so we did
1: we the mid distance was very familiar at the weight room. The cross country team was not.
0: So tell the people now, then, because you're so you know your chesticles are just oh. busting through your Solomon vest. What are we <laughs> What are we benching and squatting and deadlifting these days?
1: Ah, uh, two seventy five is my bench max right now. You've yeah. hit two seventy five. Well, right now I don't know if I could do two seventy five, but during the high rocks build, I was two seventy five.
0: That's probably around Hunter McIntyre's max. Do you know that? No,
1: I bet he's probably. Th- it's his weakest lift, the bench press. I bet he still could do 310, 315.
0: I benched with him and I was stronger at the time. Okay. You mentioned two, 255 for reps, and I was I was outworking him. However, he's put a lot of work into it since, and I'm sure he's at 315. But that's it's like his weakest lift, self-admittedly, the bench.
1: My, mine are squat and deadlift. It's pretty much self-taught form with refining through internet videos in my mirror. So I've never done a one rep max, but I've done five rep maxes and three rep maxes. So I did three sets of three at 285 for
0: both. Oh, wow. 285 on the squat. Good man. That's big time. That's And I didn't have a
1: belt. I didn't have a belt for deadlifting.
0: You don't want a belt. For deadlift? No.
1: You let that back do the work. I didn't feel super comfortable. So... You should deadlift more than you squat,
0: but I didn't. Okay, we don't use. But I was just curious. So Spartan Race of old, bracket. Mm-hmm. What was that like? That first race back in the day. Was it really like anything goes? I mean, kind of.
1: It was. It was pretty po dunk. They they had one trailer they came to the race with. Most obstacles were not most. Many were wooden, and some were metal, but not like the not like the. The structures we see now with the scaffolding they build up with the type of rigs that you see at concerts um, volunteers were almost non-existent you did i'd say the first three spartan races i did i saw a volunteer at 30 percent of the obstacles i completed
0: <laughs> oh that's it yeah oh boy
1: yeah i'd get to a monkey bars and i'd i'd do it there'd be no one in sight so you could
0: just have uh, ran and, right underneath yeah. oh
1: cheating was rampant course cutting was rampant as was going off course because they, the quote at the time was, do you know how much it costs to tape an entire course?
0: That's where they were at, huh?
1: Yeah, so they didn't tape an entire course. They'd hang strings of tape if they thought you needed to know a direction. And so people were always off course. I mean, to, to give you an idea for things, I bartered my first set of burpees down to 10.
0: <laughs> how does that happen? Oh, is that the over under through yeah, deal? the
1: over under through and I didn't fail it. I just didn't, I hurdled all of it. You <laughs> failed it, that's a fail. I completed it better than they intended.
0: Yeah. Well failed back.
1: And there was also no obstacle list. There was no instruction. There was no sign saying over, under, through, there was spray paint on the logs that they used for it. And that was it. And the under was just a log, like a sawhorse with a black tarp tied over the top and hung to the bottom. So having never seen it, I thought that was a steeple barrier with the black just there. So you got to go over. And when people started to crawl down, I thought, oh,
0: I'll jump over this. These guys aren't athletic. And you got away with your negotiation.
1: Well, yeah, because we had that quick conversation. You have to do, you failed that. But, but no DQ? No, I mean, maybe retroactively they'll DQ me now. Now you can't even
0: touch a trust.
1: You can't even touch a trust. No, I argued with them. I didn't know what burpees were. I didn't know they were penalties for failed obstacles. So he said, yeah, there's 30 burpees. I said, what is exactly is a burpee? And then I said, that sounds like a lot of work for just incorrectly doing this. Let me do it again and do 10 burpees. And he said, all right, go for it.
0: <laughs> that would never happen today.
1: Right. So yeah, it was very wide open. And then it was really off road at the time. The way that like an Asheville or a West Virginia or a Killington is, is the way that most courses were back then where you would hit stretches of trail or road like dirt road. And at least half of every course I ran for the first couple of years was, was not on a trail of some sort.
0: Bushwhacking.
1: Bushwhacking or just running through the woods. Yeah.
0: Gladiators.
1: Gladiators, yes. Gladiators were really, really obviously roided up frat boys at the time that were hired
0: line. to do this.
1: Yes. I it looked like they were paid in beer.
0: Did, did they did they ever impact a race result for real, or were they instructed yes. to smack you and then let you go by?
1: They were instructed not to hurt the open waves, but they were they knew they were on camera for the at the time, I don't even know what they called that wave. Was it the elite wave? And so they they tried to put on a show for the elite wave and, and actually impede you. And there was a race in Las Vegas, and it might have been 2013, and it was a stacked race. And it came down to Hobie won it, I believe. I could be wrong. Hunter, uh, Hunter and Cody maybe were battling for first or second, whatever they were. They were kicking in through the final half mile of the course together, which had a lot of obstacles. And they came off the fire jump together and sprinted all the way up to the gladiators and two gladiators targeted Hunter. and (laughs) Cody was able to slip by.
0: So it impacted that for sure.
1: It was at least a thousand dollar swing in prize money.
0: Oh, the subjectivity of that kills me. But I also love that they smashed.
1: Yeah. And I don't know how much he took like an actual hit, but there were just
0: two people that targeted the big guy. Cody just the <laughs> around. That's actually pretty funny. Uh, well, okay, so and, and at these races, they were already paying, and they were already they were already filming.
1: Uh, they were they were not paying my first year. They were giving away Innovate gift cards, uh, a gift certificate for a free pair of Innovate shoes for the top three, and then at some of the races, they gave away museum replica swords from the company that made the replicas for the movie 300. They hired them to give them swords, helmets, and spears. And they gave away a helmet once or twice and a spear
0: once. This is grassroots.
1: Yeah. So I, I think I have three or four legit gladiator swords in my garage. Come on. Yeah. In fact, we just moved them last week when we were rearranging They fit the pop-up inside. And I took it out and looked at it. It is... Like you, you would slice right through a person with this. (laughs) It's not a problem. It is sharpened really sharp and it is high quality.
0: Don't you feel like you should, I don't know, maybe like auction one of these off to the good people of the running public.
1: That's exactly what Lisa and I said that these, these should be auctioned off.
0: I mean, if you really have an authentic early day Spartan sword. Or three. Legitimate. One of them
1: is a King Leonidas replica from the movie. The exact same shape and dimensions of it. And it probably weighs three or four pounds.
0: What's the value on that? I don't know. I wonder if you could just throw that on the black market and make like a grand. That would have been like one of your better race earnings. <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> there there was a, a, at the Indiana Sprint, probably in 2012, I was really looking forward to racing Hobie because I hadn't raced him yet. And I was, oh I'd raced him once and I I was in better shape this year. I trained for OCR that year. And there was a helmet sitting there at the award stand while we were warming up for the race. And I thought, this is my moment. I'm going to complete the set now. I'm going to get the the Leonidas helmet to go with the sword. And right before the race started, Hobie walked up and took a microphone and announced the race. He had a hamstring thing going on. And so he didn't race. And I was so disappointed I didn't get to race him. But my the saving grace was, now that helmet is mine to lose. And I ran the entire race so hard just for that helmet. And I crossed the finish line and I was so pumped. And they brought us up and the the DJ was holding the helmet up. And then he put it down on the ground and brought out a gift certificate and handed that to me. He's like, sorry, that was just for show. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I didn't get the helmet.
0: Oh, you can have a helmet and a sword. So you have swords, you got Innovate gift cards.
1: And those Innovate gift cards lasted me probably five years. Because they were made, the first Innovate X Talons were one of the better shoes I've still to this day ever Mm -hmm. worn. But they were made like the Evo Jaws are made. I know They were disposable. They ripped real quickly. But Innovate honored their craftsmanship. So I emailed this guy and I said, hey, I wore this one race. The toe cap ripped off. What should I do? He said, send me pictures. I sent him pictures. He said, well, that shouldn't happen. I'll send you out a new pair. I said, should I send these back? He said, nah, keep them. So I'd glue them back on each time and use them for workouts. And I'd use the new pair for races. And I probably went five years off. I don't know. I probably won eight or 10 of those gift certificates and then got a new pair or two or three off the returns. And they floated me for five, six years.
0: Oh, yeah. You were living easy. Speaking of shoes, did you, uh, you kept in the know on the new VJ models coming out? I looked for some
1: information. I talked to Matt about a month ago on the phone, and he kind of wet my appetite for it, but I haven't actually seen other than I've been stalking Atkin's Instagram. And yeah, he's his, got a pair. He has two different pairs that that are coming out,
0: and he claims that the one which is basically a VJ Extreme, but with a lighter but yet more responsive foam, not Kevlar reinforced, so it's it's significantly lighter, more racy, but just a titch wider in the toe box. It's like the what we've always wanted to happen to the extreme. It's a bright orange shoe. Yeah. Atkins claims that it's the best shoe he's ever put on his foot, and we're talking racier than the extreme, more fitted to the average person's foot with a more technology and lighter foam, and the price point's even a little lower. It's going to be so sweet.
1: They took all the feedback. I give it, I give VJ so much credit for
0: taking the feedback from the athletes. Mm -hmm. so anyways they got three shoes coming out but that's the one i'm the most pumped about and the new max i'm pumped about too that's a heftier version that max is meant for like you can really roll in that thing for a long time an actual max an actual max maybe with like three x's instead of two triple triple x X max (laughs) yeah back to spartan race yeah so they weren't paying you no um what were you paying to enter
1: well i think i paid 50 bucks for the first one and or or so but then you got a free entry just like they do now if you make the the podium you got a free entry so that was probably the only spartan race i paid for maybe in my life no yeah i think that might be the only race i've ever paid for
0: you're not a pro team member anymore bracken you pay for races now i haven't it's because there were none (laughs) and i had enough credits accrued but yeah so i think i paid for my first one and never again I uh, have $50 investment into your Spartan race registrations. Yeah. And our poor listeners have thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I feel so
1: bad for people to have to buy season passes or, or, or register a la carte. It's so expensive. I've
0: been, I've been there. Been there, been there. So tell me what you miss about the Spartan race of old. Like that first... Well, I don't know whose fault this is. I don't think this is a fault of
1: anyone. But everything was so new that there was this total uncertainty... An unknown quality headed into every single race. Now, I, I I like the idea of knowing how much distance you have to cover.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I do also like the idea of being surprised by obstacles, and everything was a surprise for those first two years. No map? Uh, they, they had maps. Most of them were blocked. Were, they might not even have had real maps a back then. A
0: classified obstacle? Yeah, and most know. of
1: them at the time were, it was a name. It'd say O U T. And he didn't know what that was. Or it would say bucket carry. That could mean anything back then. Or it would say, you know, tip of the spear. No, that wasn't Spartan. But anyways, you'd have all these different names, but we didn't know what the names were yet. Or they'd create a new not, a new obstacle and give it a name and we'd have Tyrolean Traverse. Mm-hmm. You know, I was Googling what Tyrolean meant. I, I, so all of it was was unknown, but the everything was so varied. The carries from one race to the next were never the same. And then you'd hit different types. Like one race I got to, there was, you were just given a car tire and you just had to get it from point A to point B, however you wanted. Yeah. Right. And you had a bucket and you fill it yourself and go. And you had, I did a race where I had two cinder blocks to drag and another one where I had a cinder block to drag while carrying a log on my shoulder. And they, they, there were more combinations of things and the obstacles were less standardized, which made it not a sport as much as a challenge, but it made it really drastically different from course to course. And then they'd match, I think back then, they matched their carries and obstacles to terrain in a, with a different mindset. Now they match it to make it really, um, the course flow really well, or to make it visually appealing. And back then they'd match it to try to make it miserable. And so you might have to have that tractor pull, they used to call it, where you drag a cinder block on a chain, but they'd take you through a bog.
0: Why'd they stop that obstacle? That has to look, that's the one that I wish was still involved. The cinder block drag, the farmer's pull. What did they call that?
1: Yeah, I think it was tractor pull. Tractor
0: pull. What happened to that? That is such a simple damn obstacle that was awesome. It ruined people.
1: Yeah. I I think they had too many people get hurt in the open waves with masses of people going through with, them getting slung all over the place or dropped and rolling down hills
0: there was a video of hobie call up to his neck in water dragging i mean he could have died that day i Mm -hmm. think that was at uh temecula Temecula. i mean he was barely had his face out of the water dragging the water was so deep he was dragging a cinder block through there
1: yeah that's another thing i miss i understand why but i miss having swims that were not life jacket mandatory Because then it really rewarded swimming and preparation, and then the ability to run after swimming, swimming rather than float paddling.
0: Right, right. And they would let you swim in water over your head without a life jacket. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They didn't care. No. Life lifeguards. Yeah. I
1: not. It wasn't a safe setup, but it challenged the athlete more. Mm -hmm. Longer swims. uh, Not nothing like uh, more along the lines of what West Virginia was like this past year where there was a actual swim rather than you know wading through water. But there were there was more water crossing. It was just more rustic in feel. But there at the same time, I I got to an Indiana race one year and I think we didn't have a spear throw and we didn't have half of the obstacles because they just didn't get permission on that land or something like that. So it was it was more of a crapshoot at the same time. But I missed the ruggedness of the terrain and I missed the uncertainty of the obstacles now you can pretty much plan out exactly how the race is going to go and train exactly to the obstacle and when there was some more unknown it was more about training muscle groups and technique rather than perfecting a single obstacle so that you had the same four hand grips every time you did that obstacle
0: mm-hmm like the wild west of obstacle yeah. course racing that's what i like about these small ones that still pop up i've done a few like the hammer race that is local for example where <laughs> you run a 10k with an eight-pound minimum sledgehammer, and you do things with the sledgehammer along the way, and you have no idea. The course map is, doesn't exist. You yeah. just see what happens. Those are exciting. I miss that.
1: Yeah. I At know. the same time, though, obstacles used to break. Things used to go wrong. They'd close off an obstacle because it it came loose or it couldn't handle the load anymore or something cracked. Uh, the carries were significantly lighter other than the bucket. Mm-hmm. I look back to my first Killington World Championship sandbag, and it was a joke it was probably a 40 pound sandbag that we maybe took a quarter mile
0: was that the second year in killington where it killed people
1: yes second uh, year was 70 pounds and you took it a half mile straight up and down a black diamond ski slope that was that was miserable and that was a double uh there were probably two
0: right yeah that's what i'm saying yeah.
1: two different carries a single and a double right okay but yeah, so so some things definitely are improved without a doubt. But the the unknown quality, it's almost a little too
0: sterile at times now. Well, now they're sanitizing stations as well. So that's true as well. Really formalize it. What are the obstacles from back in the day that don't exist anymore? Hmm. The tractor pull. Tractor pull for sure. Uh, fill your own bucket. For fill sure. your own
1: bucket, which was a game changer, I believe. Now it's just another shoulder carry.
0: And it's way lighter.
1: And runnable. The bucket was, there was an art to shuffling with it that was difficult for people. Um, Nothing else? Not that I can think of. We have more obstacles now and more challenging obstacles. Uh, We had the flat wall, traverse wall instead of a Z wall. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think was more difficult. Really? Just a long flat wall was more difficult?
1: Yeah. No
0: leverage on that inside corner?
1: No leverage. And then if it's leaning at all, you're just stuck with that the whole time. And they had had more balance obstacles, that's one thing. They had a lot of balance obstacles back in the day. They'd have the log hop, where they'd have cut off thin logs sunk into the ground and you have to hop from log to log. They had that that zigzag balance beam. Seen it once. Really?
0: Yeah, it sucked, it was terrible. I remember I got to it, I I went up to Canada and did a race outside of Calgary in a place called Red Deer. It was my second and third Spartan races and I had the lead. Over some good guys, Mick Jarillo, Austin Azar was there, a couple other guys. And I got to this Z-beam, and it was completely raining. Shoes were caked with mud. I don't know how anybody passed it. I did burpees and got passed by all those guys. It's a two-by-four turned so you can walk on the- Two-by-six, probably. Two-by-six. It was impossible. My feet were so caked with mud. I don't know how these guys did it. They were nimble as cats. And that was the tough part. You always hit it after a mud. Oh, Anyways, that, I'm glad that one's gone. They had a they had the Hobie Hop there.
1: Hobie Hop.
0: That's another one that they had for years and is gone. The Hobie Hop was incredible and also pissed me off. So the Hobie Hop, not that I'm an OG here, but I'm just going to get into it. Mm-hmm. They give you these thick rubber bands, like four-inch wide rubber bands, kind of like an exercise rubber band you would see in a gym. And you have to put these around your feet. And then you have to hop through a course full of fallen trees Um, boxes, all sorts of things. And you had to hop. You couldn't shuffle like one foot in front of the other with mini steps. You had to hop. And sometimes like the one I did was like 75 meters long. It took forever. It was like a two and a half minute Hobie hop. I was exhausted. And then the guy gets on behind me and his rubber band breaks halfway through. So then he half hops through and half cheats and half the bands were broken. It was a mess, but damn it. There was like a four foot wall in the middle that you had to like get over with like rubber bands around your feet. This is the wildest thing. The Hobie hop, there was also the, it was like a gymnastic bar, two gymnastic bars next to each other that you had to get up on. Like if you're doing like a tricep dip and shuffle your way down like a 20 meter gym, gym, gymnast bar. These are things I remember from 2016, my first year, but that Hobie hop was something else that actually blew the field open.
1: Yeah. They, they had that for the first time at the 2012 world championships. Okay. Did that come from Hobie Call? Did that come yeah. from
0: Hobie Call? Why? I don't know. Oh, all right. I
1: think he designed it for him. He was working with them at the time. Okay. But I had been doing work like that during, I'd invented my OCR 400s that year. Ah. Huh. And I, that was one of the things I did. I did tuck jumps as one of my stations and it played out really well. But I, I saw that in Dubai uh, a year or two ago. We did about a quarter mile Hobie hop where we had four and five foot walls and over under through to do with it.
0: You can never take the bands off around your ankles.
1: Nope. So it still exists other places. And in stadiums, they still put it around when you do the heavy jump rope. Oh, they do? It's, I don't know why. They used to do it where you'd put it on and then you'd go up and down a flight of stairs. And that was brutal.
0: Mm-hmm. I just remember my quads were so on fire, man. Like my quads were yeah. gone. Trying to jump up on a 24 inch box with your feet banded together and getting over stuff like that just wrecked. In the me. middle of a mountain 10k, <laughs> it's just wild, yeah. Okay, so that kind of
1: stuff. Uh, there used to be more tyrolean traverses. There were more um, natural obstacles where they would use things that were already on course to their advantage. Where you don't really, you don't go on anything that they don't. That they don't rig up themselves now for safety reasons, but there was an Illinois course that used to have their own like log-based obstacles all over it, and you get an extra ten or twelve obstacles just based off the course itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I missed the uh, I missed the using the environment as obstacle mindset, which I noted a ton even in 2016. I think in my first Canada was kind of like the Wild West still when I went up there. I was like, oh, they're doing it right up here. It was a lot different, to be honest.
1: There used to be a lot more ropes they'd throw down over ledges and like mini cliffs or rock scrambles that you had to get up places that weren't runnable. You did a lot more bear crawling up scrambles and down things that were super sketchy.
0: I think almost every every race I had done, it had such a steep portion where it had to have a rope attached and you had to go up it on a rope. My first uh, plate drag was... It was just like sandbags tied together in a noose and it was uphill at like a thirty percent grade and you were pushing so hard that you were sliding down the hill on your ass towards the weight you were trying to pull up to you because the grade was so steep. It was like stuff like that. You don't see it anymore. Not not as much, no. So how did the okay, so how did the protein culture happen and how has that changed like from then till now?
1: They had their world championships in 2012, which was kind of their coming out party. 2011, they had it in Texas, and it was a super in Glen Rose. And it was a really cool race, but it just didn't have the atmosphere. And then they went to Killington for 2012, and it was this electric atmosphere. Anyone who's ever raced any of the Killington world championships, even there without the world championship, there's just a vibe on that mountain. And they brought in a lot of people. They brought in some... um some trail uh studs they brought in some some runners some i guess i shouldn't say they brought in a lot they brought in a few people and after that race they realized we have something here this was a different different uh mentality and and just atmosphere here and over that winter robert Koble and joe Desena worked together probably with other people as well behind the scenes to start a pro team they wanted to make this a real sport and they signed something like six or eight guys. and You said, were one of them. Yeah, yeah. It was Ho- Hobie, Cody, myself, I think uh, Elliot McGuire, um, maybe Alexander Nicholas. We had Chris Rutz. Um, and then on the women's side, it was, I think, Amelia, maybe Claude. I'm not sure if Claude signed or not she was Canadian. We had Rosemary Jari. I might not be saying that name right. We had Jenny Tobin um these are all names that
0: people haven't heard before i mean sean Fayak
1: and his girlfriend i forget her name um yeah all, all these people that were just the it was who was there at the beginning andy hardy um people that were there It was just the best of whoever was already in the spartan race and would you say
0: on. give us an idea of who like for example myself would i have been on that original spartan race pro team if i were racing after? oh for sure would a guy like a like a fifteenth place US national series finisher maybe be making the pro team back then?
1: The difference between now and then I get asked a lot. The top of the sport is not much different. I mean, think yep. of who the top was then. Cody the world and champions were Hobie and Cody. Mm-hmm. And then I was third.
0: You were also a, you were also a class of athlete that you haven't been in a few years then, though, as well. Correct. But now you
1: take that. And it's basically, that's the same talent pool expanded where Hobie and Cody could still win just about any race out there, including Worlds. And it has happened within the last two to three years. And I am now pushed back a little bit, but I'm still the same level athlete if I get back into shape that I was then. But now there's 15 other people that are similar to me in this country. And so it's just an expanded field of the same talent. So anyone who's top 15 in the U.S. National Series now would have been one of the original studs back then.
0: Okay, that's what I figured. I was just curious. So pro team development. So I want to hear it all, dude. I want to hear like contracts between then and now, what they were throwing at you, what was offered, how easy it was. Because all I've experienced is the beggars can't be choosers version of the the Spartan race pro team contract. Granted, I'm not a heavy hitter yet, but what was it like, man?
1: There's a race in January, I think. It was sometime early in the year down in Las Vegas that was their their big reveal. So they signed us all over the winter, talked about it all. And then they brought, they flew everyone in to Las Vegas for this race. And we had a pro team dinner the night before. At well, night. they
0: paid for your flights. They paid for your hotels. They encouraged, they, it was on their card. They, somebody ordered that for you.
1: Yeah. We didn't, we didn't handle a thing.
0: That doesn't even exist now.
1: No. And they, they, they put us all up in the same hotel and blocks of rooms for us. We met at this restaurant, this nice restaurant the night before the race and Joe gave a talk and then they showed a video of stuff and then they just, just kept bringing out rounds of food. And it was just this, it felt like how it should feel if you're signing to a a pro race team. And we had signed that first year, there was no signing bonuses. Um, Maybe Hobie got one. I'm not entirely sure, but we basically all signed to a level of races where from the moment you leave your house to the time you return to your house, there's no expense on your part for each trip. And then you signed to how many races you got.
0: So they didn't give you money up front. Correct. Your travel, your hotel, your rental car, your food, any expenses, and then all that race earnings would be profit. Correct. So the incentive to race often, if you wanted to make money wasn't guaranteed unless you went and actually raced
1: correct but there was no cost for you to leave other than if you had to miss work okay and i and i, I could be missing part of that maybe there was some podium bonuses or something like that in there but I, i'm not recalling it at the time and you also started we started getting gear for the first time but it was minimal that first year
0: was it reebok
1: right away no 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 reebok wasn't i don't believe reebok was there that
0: first year so who is giving you giving you gear Spartan Race, Spartan Race branded cheap gear, basically. Yeah, like Russell Athletic with a Spartan logo on it. I think so. Okay. I don't. I, I again, I'm a little hazy on that because that
1: was 2013. By the end of 2013, we got our first Reebok gear. Okay. Again, I think so. Then, so I think I signed for a 12 to 15 race contract. Meaning you minimum had to race that much? I was allowed to race that much. I got twelve to fifteen races free, something like that, at twelve or fifteen. And Hobie and Elliot McGuire. Elliot was a young guy who was seen as maybe the next up and coming thing. He got an unlimited contract. He decided he he was a military guy, and he was in between whatever he was doing at the time. And he just took a year and decided to milk it. And I think he went to something like 48 or 52 races. They estimated that he spent over $50,000 in travel that year.
0: Well, you think, honestly, if you're not super picky and you want decent itineraries and stay in a hotel that doesn't have mice, like you're spending a thousand bucks a trip. Yeah. That adds up.
1: So he's part of the reason they put in limits the next year.
0: Okay. Did he clean house too at those races? No. Oh, he didn't? No. Wasn't as good as he thought.
1: Well, as they thought. He was he was fine, but he was he was not a make a podium at a big race kind of guy. Yeah, so because of that season is why we got some limits put in the next year. So the next year, they lowered some things down, but then they started doing some signing bonuses. And then we had a Reebok going, so there were Reebok deals in play and more gear. And then they started to professionalize a bit from there. And then it probably peaked in that 2014-2015 seasons and then 2016 was kind of that tipping point where they started to retract a bit of that the pro team got too big they spent too much they were having a hard time proving return on investment to their to their boards and then they started pulling back and realizing we don't have to pay these people now the sport's gotten really big mm-hmm. and there are hundreds of people now who will do this for the ability to put that they're an elite racer on their Instagram profile. And so that eroded a lot of the bargaining power from there on.
0: Was there ever any sponsor contracts or you only made your money off of race winnings? On-
1: Things started to started to separate. So people started to get Reebok contracts through Spartan and some people had their own thing outside of Spartan. And it started to, it, it kind of evolved free form. And so there wasn't uh, anything other than precedent. There Mm -hmm. there wasn't a pre-established route for that. Some people got their own sponsors and some got it through Spartan. And then Spartan started to realize it's much better if we can get someone else to pay them than us. And so they started to try to, they offered their, they were smart. The first year they did signing bonuses, they also offered themselves as agent services, Mm. which none of us other than Hunter had an agent. And so it made sense to say, yeah, absolutely, because I'll take... 80% of something over a hundred percent of nothing. And then that laid the groundwork for them to start, start that as their protocol, which is we will source you sponsorships. And then that turned into, you can't have sponsors that, you know, are competitors, direct competitors of our sponsors. So that's where that whole slippery slope started.
0: Interesting. Um, And when did the, I'm going to throw you a lump sum of money type contract start in the beginning of the year?
1: Uh, probably 2015. For 2014, maybe again the world champs were getting it. I'm not sure, but 2015 is the first time I saw it.
0: And is that like, hey, we're going to finagle it so you are guaranteed these three sponsors that will pay you this, and that's how you're going to make your money? Or Spartan was actually giving you directly money out of their pocket.
1: I don't know where they took it from, but it came to me from
0: Spartan that first lump sum uh, signing bonus, as they called it. And you had no obligation to post about Reebok in association with that or no no obligation to wear a certain shoe or anything. Well, the contract came with certain
1: stipulations, which were we would race in their apparel and their gear, that if you sign this, that's part of the stipulation, yeah.
0: I benefited from those days because you gave me a bunch of hand-me-down Reebok shit a few years oh, yeah. ago. I still have those shorts. They're good.
1: Reebok Reebok struggled in the shoe game for a long time, but they're... Apparel
0: material can compete with anyone. Their tops fantastic. and their shorts were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have two pairs actually. You gave me. I don't know why you got rid of those. That was a dumb move on your part. uh they were a little snug on the old Quadsaurus. Uh, yeah, you got some meaty thighs. So walk me through it. So okay, so and then back in those days was was Desena super involved? Yeah, early on he was at every race I went to. Every race. Every race. Is Joe Desena in person the Joe Desena you still know and see today? He,
1: yeah, he's a mellower version of the same person when you're just one-on-one with him.
0: Laid back, not as intense.
1: Yeah. Like anything else, you get on TV and you, you amp everything up one notch. And so the piece that we always get from him on TV is still who he is, but it's just the more intense version. I, I was lucky enough that early on, I mean, without, without trying to sound egotistical, I was probably a top three to five racer in the world for my first three to five years there. Mm-hmm. And so there was just a small group of us, and so we all had pretty direct access to Joe. And so it wasn't a bizarre thing to call him or get a call from him uh, when he came into town for for like a workout tour. You know, he picked me up from my house in his in his, the SUV that someone was driving him around, and we went to a news station together, and then out to lunch together, and then a couple gyms together. So we, I had time early in my career to spend. Actual time with Joe, and I'm, I'm not going to overblow it and say we were friends or buddies, mm-hmm. but we were we were more than acquaintances, and we were we were in each other's phones and in an accessible nature. And so I got to see him in that. In that, I'm the CEO, I'm the founder, but I'm also really loving what this brand is, and out at every race, and at every race he would do a uh, one of the open waves with people. He'd take okay. his kettlebell or take his sandbag and do the whole course. And as the brand grew. He started only showing up at the National Series, which at the time were the NBC races, and then what they called the, um, I think the Founders, a Founders race. No, I don't see him at any of them. Yeah, and now world. Worlds, and occasionally he'll be at a race, but they're in, what, 50 countries or whatever, so.
0: Yeah, is that how he rolls around in a black SUV with a chauffeur? Is that how <laughs> he rolled around back in the day?
1: He, he had a... Dr- As long as I've known, and again, I don't want to say like, as long as I've known him, like we're friends because that's, that's overplaying our relationship. But as long as I've known Joe, I've never seen him drive a car in my life because he is the busiest human I've ever seen. If he's in a car, if he's sitting down, he is on his phone and his laptop going through tens of thousands of messages and emails. And so when he was in vermont every time he would travel to an airport as far as i know someone would drive him and he'd get two hours of of emails and, and work done so he just worked anytime he was in a car
0: i know somebody runs his social media account i would assume it's obviously not him it's got to be like anthony over there at spartan or somebody okay. is the real joe descendant because it's too much content no way i don't think he could keep up with it and he replies to everybody's comments i believe it just can't be him however um I'm amazed at how much content he at least gives whoever's posting it to put up there. Like knowing he's running a company, tell he told people on the Joe Rogan podcast he gave them his damn phone number, email. You imagine what happened to Joe after that? The amount of the uh, busyness that guy has to go through—that makes a lot of sense to me, actually.
1: As far as I know, up until at least two or three years ago, he partially responded to
0: every email that was ever sent to him. That's kind of impressive. I respect that. I can't even imagine it. No, not at all. And since I don't know, 10 million listeners on the Joe Rogan podcast have his email. I'm sure that was a real treat. Probably gave him his burner accounts. <laughs> I don't know.
1: At least for the phone. But still, so, I mean, that's that's not something that he would shy away from, though. He's I've never seen someone that can compartmentalize like he does. We'd be like that that day he was in town for the weekend, we we went to uh, – you know, the Fox six news station, we did our interview and we hopped into a car on the way to the gym and he probably knocked out 15 emails in the, in the five minute ride. He was just from one thing to the other, just always on.
0: Mm. So who, uh, who else was involved with big Decision center? Was it Joe is calling the shots. Joe is, what is his quote? I love fire, 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 fire ready aim.
1: Yeah. They, they say about Joe working with him is fire,
0: fire, aim ready. fire aim ready. I love that quote. Don't th- just pull the trigger.
1: And at the time it was Joe and he had his people he founded with, he had the the founding five or whatever they were, but it was Joe's company. And if he made some crazy decision, they just did it. And that was all there was to it. There was really no oversight. There wasn't this huge board. they didn't have angel investors or anything like that. And Robert Koble very early on
0: Tell people who Robert Koble is, because I don't think people we throw that name around a lot. Because all of us pros know Robert Koble. and he's still around. And Robert's a great guy. Who's Robert Koble?
1: Robert started, at, or currently, he is the head official referee.
0: The most important guy at the race venue is Robert Koble.
1: Yeah, so he's the one you see on TV in his official striped uniform, and he runs, he runs all of like the result-based day-to-day work.
0: If you get If you get DQ'd, penalized, anything, that officially will all be run through him. Yes. And then he used to manage the pro team as well.
1: He used to wear more hats than anyone at Spartan Race. Back in 2012, he ran the world championships. He bought a pair of running shoes on the way to their race. He had been a pro cyclist and involved in the pro teams overseas. And he went out there and just loved it. And he went to Joe and said, I love what you're doing. I want to be a part of it. Use me in some way. And Joe does not turn down a resource. He milks the resource until it is scorched earth. (laughs) And that's what they did with Robert Coble. So they put him in charge of the pro team, but he was also doing timing and results. And he was also doing behind the scenes logistics with travel and things like that. So he was doing so many things early on. And as a result, it was a great time to be on the pro team because he had so much on his plate that you would just send him
0: an invoice and he would just push it through. You got me into my first couple U.S. National Series races. They were completely full mm-hmm. because I wasn't sure what I was going to do in 2017. And you just called Robert up and said, hey, man, I got a favor. Can you get my buddy Kirk in off the record? And you snuck me into my first two U.S. National Series races that way through Robert Coppola. That would never happen today. No, but never. that was... That was the benefit of having a
1: relational-based company back then. Everyone was on first-name basis with everyone there, and we had rapport both ways. And it was, hey, if Bracken thinks there's a guy who can show up, or if Hobie says there's this steeplechaser out of Utah, or if Matt Novakovich says there's this mountain racer, let's bring him in. And Joe was, yeah, let's get everyone. We want this to grow. And, and, so, and I'm sure Spartan had these crazy audits that happened because things had to change eventually. But at yeah. the time, it was financially the wild west if they wanted something they just throw budget at it and then they'd figure it out later and if someone invoiced something you just got approved and they'd figure out how to cover the cost later whereas now you in if you were to i don't even know who invoices things anymore but you would have to submit everything very clearly and then they would probably just turn a lot of it down back then you just got they approved whatever you invoiced
0: i just know how much has changed since i entered the sport yeah. 2016 i really got a taste in 2017 for And so I can't imagine how much it's changed since day one. Robert Koble probably shaped the sport as much
1: as anyone other than Joe DeSena did. He started this athlete ranking system on his own. This Mm -hmm. Excel sheet he had with all these rankings and weighting of courses versus who showed up and didn't show up. He was was a Jack Bauer before Jack Bauer. He was. And that turned into the actual national and world rankings that they use. And that turned into their selection criteria for the pro team. And that's how they determined who was going to be pushed to the NBC market. And and all the moves he made behind the scenes really shaped our sport. Now he gets a lot of flack. There are a lot of racers who really do not like him because of his officiating decisions. But in terms of what he's done up until this point, I think he might be the most underappreciated contributor, to obstacle racing success in the entire world.
0: Robert Koble. Yeah. He works as, when you watch him, he's moving a million miles an hour at all race venues. Yeah. I mean, double, triple checking every, you know, there's probably a thousand boxes he has to make sure are good to go at, during race day. So he's a guy with the striped shirt. Pay attention for him, Robert Koble. Go say thank you to that guy. He invented the systems that are being used today. Yes, he did. Yeah. And I agree. Sometimes people don't agree with his decisions, but I think he always makes the rash decision for the greater good. And that's kind of the, uh, the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. So walk me back. Okay. So we talked pro team contracts. Can you just compare them? Can you compare them like today? Not that you know, loser today's contracts. I know today's contracts. I turned it down. That's right. So today's contracts for the top guys who are getting the most from Spartan compared to the top guys back in like 2013, getting the most, what's the difference? Share what you're comfortable
1: with. 2013, there wasn't much money getting thrown around, but it was unlimited travel and stuff and and everything door to door, which only the top people are getting real travel these days. Right, if anybody. But from 2014, 15, 15, 16, it was not... It it was very common that if you were a top 10 racer, you were going to get at least a four-figure signing bonus.
0: Four-figure signing bonus?
1: Yeah, at least. Like, if you were the 10th ranked guy, if you didn't have a four figure signing bonus, then you were just being disrespected. And you were getting mid five figure or low to mid five figures if you were if you were actually like a world podium threat just to sign the contract,
0: they might offer you $15,000 just to sign the contract
1: 25 29,000. Yeah, depending on who you were.
0: I mean, I know Faye Stenning. um, Back in 2017, I believe it was said to Spartan basically because she quit her job. She had said I need to make like for my lifestyle, I need to make X, which was like, I need to make 80,000 or $100,000 a year, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And Spartan came back with uh, a front offer travel stipend sponsors that came through Spartan that paid her and she made what she needed to make. Yeah.
1: And that's the way it worked. If I could describe the difference in contracts now, it used to be an athlete-based contract. It was Spartan wanted to woo an athlete into becoming a Spartan athlete, and now it's the athletes want badly to be a part of Spartan, and so Spartan will will bring them on board begrudgingly. And that's how the contracts feel. It used to be, what can we do to get you on board? And now it's, what can we get away with signing you for? And that that that's really different. Robert Killian, for example won world championships and got offered less money the next year. Where in the past, if you came on board and they thought you might be a candidate to be on a podium at world championships, they were going to throw money at you in
0: case you panned out. From what I know, it's like the best in the sport today are making like a 10 grand signing bonus. And this is like two or three people. Mm -hmm. And they're getting like $300 stipend to travel to the big races, maybe 300 bucks or so. And that's it. And free race entry. There still is some higher up there. Uh, are you sure about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's some that are a little bit higher, but most of them are tied through sponsorship deals.
0: Well, that's what I'm. That and then on top of that would be the, the affiliate sponsors like Ascent Protein or whatever. Whoever the personal sponsors are is where people are guaranteeing their money. Yep. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There, no, no one's
1: paying you for the for the service of having you attached to their name anymore. It's nope. now. Or having you in the stable. It used to be, we're going to assign five or 10 people that we think are going to pan out. And if one or two win Worlds, we have a Spartan athlete on the world podium. Now it's, yeah, you won Worlds, but how many times did you post last month? So this isn't to rip into it. It's just to show the dichotomy between how it started and what it's become.
0: But I would like to add to that, you know, I've been part of those conversations. And so we have these athlete meetings, like at the world championship this year, we had an athlete meeting. Uh, the night before the race, and there were all the Spartan Pro team members from around the world, and most familiar faces from the U.S. And it was cool to see the overseas people that you couldn't even talk to because they spoke different languages. However, at this con- at this meeting, it was a half an hour of social media guidelines. We need you to tag hashtag Spartan Pro. We need you to tag us in your post. We have an algorithm to keep track of all of that, and that, my Spartan Pro team members, is how we value your worth. Mm-hmm is off of your social media presence. How many followers do you have? How often are you giving us love? Are you tagging our sponsors in your posts? And that's what half of our hour-long meeting before the World Championships entailed, did it not? It did. I left that meeting, Kirk. Because of that? Because it was tedious. I was in the front row like a good boy. Yeah. So I didn't see any of you peasants behind me. I walked out for the exit. <laughs> you did. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. As soon as Watson got up there and started bloviating about, you know, we don't really all we care about is you have to be great on social media. And John Albin said something like, Uh yeah, I'm not gonna be part of this meeting. And he walked
0: out. <laughs> he was already but John Albin was already leaning against the door in the corner, yeah. like ready to sneak out.
1: As soon as I saw that interaction, I thought, yep. John has a good pulse on what matters.
0: As an, but advocate. you also have to remember, we had in that meeting was also a half an hour discussion about John Albin being disqualified because he had run part of the course the day prior right. or the week prior. So John Albin was a subject of his own potential demise in that meeting yeah. where he was sitting. He was ready to get out of there. Anyways, what I what I
1: look to is that you 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 kind of you dress to the job you want, right? Not the job you have. Yep. And as a pro-athlete, in quotes, true pro-athletes are wined and dined and waited upon, and the sponsors ask them for things, but it's basically the sponsor will come to them and say, I'd like to come out and do this with you, and then we're going to use it this many times, and someone runs your social. It's not, hey, you know what, you have to post 30 times per week in order for us to look at you. You get noticed either by being good at social media or by being a monster in your field and then they treat you accordingly if you come up as a social media star that's the way you have to proceed and if you're a monster on the field they're happy to have your face associated with the brand spartan mm-hmm. is coming from the perspective of everyone's got to earn it before we'll give you the time of day and you're going to earn it through social media we don't care as much about results because we can just push someone else's agenda in the in the stories or in the in the race coverage so it just feels awkward to a lot of people who believe all my friends in other sports, they show up and they win and people will court them for their their services. Where here you have the world championship, The you have probably the 30 of the 40 best people on the planet in one room. And someone gets up and says, all right, so about our social media algorithm, the <laughs> night before the world championship, it was just a really, that meeting Four years ago would have been Joe standing up and toasting everyone here and then highlighting some stories and then showing a highlight reel of what everyone's done throughout the year and just championing the idea that this is a celebration of the pinnacle of human performance in this sport. And this year, the athlete meeting started off with, we really need to do better on social media. And it was a bizarre tone to start the world championship weekend off with when we were going to be towing the start line in 24 hours.
0: It was bizarre, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It, it, You know, it does go to show though, the power of it. And we'll move on from social media because it comes up a lot, but um, I mean, I, the number of OCR age group and even open waivers that have sponsors these days and have Mm -hmm. a following it has opened the door, at least for people who maybe aren't physically capable of winning or running elite at the high level, so open the door for a lot of them. Everybody's a dang honey stinger ambassador and a goo representative yeah. and gets a discount code on their hokas. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's great if it can help fund your passion a little bit, but that's sure. the one positive I've seen. But I think on the top, top end, it's a negative. Yeah. It's a big negative. Yeah. Um, okay, enough about that. I was just curious about the contracts. Anything else to dive in with the contracts? The difference between that and now? Uh,
1: it, was, it was a young business, so there was a lot of handshake agreements.
0: That actually went through.
1: It <laughs> actually went through. And then over time, it turned into real business dealings.
0: And now the signed agreements don't actually go through.
1: Right. Yeah. This, I don't want to turn this into a, a rant against Spartan because I still love Spartan. But Me too. It, it turned from a sport where you knew by first name everyone who was involved in the company. And if they said something in passing, it, it happened. And it went through to the point now where if it's signed and they change their mind, you don't get it. And if it's signed and some crazy circumstance comes up on your end, you get billed for it.
0: Yeah. I signed a $5,000, 6000 deal with a Energy Drinks that was all gone through, signed, returned to me with their signatures on it. And then they've never responded to me since. Yeah. <laughs> so that happens. But if I were to get that contract and then not follow through, I probably would have been penalized, I would assume.
1: Yeah. We, we saw athletes this year have to pay back bonuses for weekends they couldn't get to and then when other things were promised to them and it wasn't paid it was a sorry circumstances have changed so it really turned into a legitimate business and with that came legitimate business dealings which are not relational dealings
0: Mm. i would like to just plug um gone rogue who i work with who people love to rip on gone rogue for its you know dog food nature taste in their opinion Um, those people have been fantastic they're still doing it the old school way. We're having phone calls and they're handshaking and following through and good people cool. for them. So I, that's a relationship I've really enjoyed. Same with VJ Shoes and Endure They've both been just, even if they send you an email, say it'll happen, it happens.
1: That's And athletic brewing seems to be really supporting people right now too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what those, uh, those contracts look like. Might have to ask a few people. <laughs> uh, all right. What else do we want to dive into a Spartan man? I think I'm just curious as far as the, the other thing I'm curious about, as we always like to compare Spartan, the athletes, then to now. Mm-hmm. The field is more dense. And, you know, you could have been on the podium at Worlds eight years ago, and now that might get you 20th. You know, the third podium spot might be taken by somebody who took 15th this year in comparative. Yeah. As far as the competition goes, and I also want to talk about how your training has morphed as well. Yeah. How, how, has, how has that changed, the competition on the men and women's front? Are there truly – As we like to just, do we like to fluff our own feathers and say, oh, the field's way more dense this year, and that's why I took 11th in the first race? Or are we just kidding ourselves?
1: No, it's for sure more dense. I truly believe at the top, it's no more special than it ever was. There are certain, I I shouldn't say that. At the very top, it's no more special because you got to remember when I came in, Hobie was the best. And when he retired, what, a year and a half ago? He was the US national, US champion. U.S. National Series champion. He was the best, and he had just won Worlds the year before. So throughout those eight years, the very top didn't change. All the newcomers came in, and it was like that old, uh, that old, you know, sports phrase: "Mess with the best, fall like the rest." That's kind of what happened. Everyone who came in fell like everyone else before them because the top was that good. We were lucky; we had a couple people that were just genetically suited to OCR, Hobie and Cody, at the top from 2012 on. You know, 2012 World Championships, Hobie and Cody won. And they also won in what, 2017 and 2018, those two guys? Yep. Something like that. So Mm -hmm. their reign... 2016 and 2017. Okay. So their reign proved that the top didn't actually get better. Now there were some skill sets that evolved. Uh, Some of the flat ground running has gotten much better. Yeah. So the descending has gotten much better. The carrying, the grip strength has gotten much better. And yet it hasn't yet evolved into a greater iteration at the very top than we've ever seen before. John Albin's been there since what, 2013? And he won his first year. 2014, he was there. Ryan mm-hmm. Atkins has taken second every year since 2014. Well, he took fourth place one year. One year. So, anyways, the, the top one through four people are almost just the same names every year. And then the supporting cast, the hunters, um, Ryan Woods has actually been there a long time now. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm trying to think who else has been there for a long time. Even myself, like we've always been the supporting cast and we've kind of outlasted the generations. New right. people come and go or stay, but they're not really supplanting anyone. They're just complimenting them in the race. And the, the easiest way for me to explain it is that it used to be if I dropped someone or got dropped, That was now my position the rest of the race, and I might not see anyone. If I dropped the field in a race, I might win by four minutes and not run challenged. Or if I got dropped by Cody in a beast, like one time in South Carolina, he dropped me in mile two. I just decided to go out with him, get as far ahead of everyone else, and then cruise in. And that's exactly what I did. And now there would be another pack of 10 waiting for you right there.
0: So instead of taking second, as a given, if you caved in, you could have taken 10th. Exactly.
1: Every place now comes with three or four. I, I think it's it's a multiple of three to five. You take whatever place that you would have gotten in 2012 and you multiply by three to five and that's now your range. First mm-hmm. place, you now would take first through fifth somewhere in there. Fifth place, you now take fifth through 15th or 20th somewhere in there.
0: I think that's a good, good gauge. Now on the women's side, I would argue that the top end has gotten better.
1: Night and day different.
0: Um, I would not say that the depth of field, I mean, in Jacksonville, it was not great in my opinion, uh, earlier this year. However, there were some people not there, but like the top end is insane on the women's.
1: Yeah, and we've seen who the studs were at the time. Amelia, Cloud, um, Rose. They were three of the original best, and Rose is probably the one who has maintained the best. She took a third or fourth in Alabama last year for Jacksonville.
0: Third, yeah. That was not based on her running, but based on her obstacle proficiency. Right. So she,
1: she's the only one of the old guard that's made a meaningful podium in the last three or four years. So the top has definitely gotten better, but I would argue that the strength of field, the depth has also exponentially increased with them. What they yeah. haven't done yet is closed the gap between the top and the field.
0: Like the 10th place woman is not nearly as close to the winner as the 10th place man is as close to the first place man. Correct.
1: Yet the 10th place woman right now would have been a top three in the world back in the day. Mm -hmm. And the women's sport has always been about three years behind the men's. Sure. So you, I believe you have to judge the 2019 or the 2020 Jacksonville result of the women's based off the closeness of field from the 2017, 2018 First race of the US national series for the men. I think that's sure. the only way to get an accurate depiction of where their sport's at and its progression in relation to the men's. All
0: right. That's good stuff, man. I like hearing this. This is uh, I don't know. I just I think we haven't taken a step back and put all of this into perspective in like mm-hmm. a broad stroke, touching on a lot of topics. So, like I'm very interested in hearing your perspective on a lot of this. The other thing I want to hear is, you know, you've been a coach for a while. I've been a coach for the last four years. Um How has training, like general training philosophy, changed, if at all, since the beginning until now?
1: At the beginning, you basically were one of two athletes in the sport. You were a power athlete who was training to learn how to run, or you were a runner training to learn how to be better at obstacles. And the way that looked was however people wanted it to look. You had people running three times a week, making podiums and people running 10 times a week and making podiums and the training over time evolved into the point where they were actual people with endurance backgrounds and minds and fitness background and minds combining to get a specific OCR style training plan going. So now okay. even the runner, the purest runners in our sport strength train and do some sort of obstacle proficiency training. And even the power-based athletes run like real runners. And at the beginning, it was just, you would train whatever skill you didn't have. And everyone would show up with a crazy array of body types and skill sets and training styles. And now we still have a wide array, but it's much more focused and fleshed out in what we do.
0: You got to think too, like back when this had started, like CrossFit was just getting off the ground itself. I mean, really, it was really finally starting to take hold around then, if I if I'm not mistaken. I mean, CrossFit boxes were popping up, and I believe the Underground CrossFit Games had started, and all of that. But um, I feel like I've noticed a big shift in the in the shift in style of that style of training. The METCON and WOD based training seems to be like trendier, even since I started four years ago, trendier and trendier uh, as far as a training style. Even like Kent, when he first came into the sport, wasn't doing that stuff. He was running. And he was lifting weights mm-hmm. like a bro, right? Yeah. I feel like that's been the biggest, the biggest patchy, flashy training trend has been to the Wad and Metcon style strength and run or strength and cardio movement. I think that's one half of it. I think the other half is that sometime in the
1: last probably just two to three years the general populace, the open wave, the age group athlete and then the B and C level elite runner, they all finally embrace the idea that this is a running sport.
0: Has it become more of a running sport? Do you feel like it, the courses are now and the setup is suiting runners more as well?
1: I uh, you know, I think you go either way on that. I think that running finally matters the most. I mean, I guess it always did, but not, once everyone gets good at everything else, the underlying characteristic that wins out now is is running. And at the beginning, there were all the best runners would fail obstacles and all the best strength people couldn't run. And he was just balancing one person's weakness against the other. Like when Ryan Woods came in, he didn't win or podium for so long because he couldn't complete an obstacle. And now the guy's got great grip strength, and so it becomes running again. And yeah. you look at the across the sport, you now don't have anyone who's a podium threat that isn't a really good runner, right? because they've all gotten good at their weaknesses. So it's a credit to the sport that people train it seriously, but sometimes it used to be complained that this was one of the, I even wrote an, an argument about this, an entire article I wrote as a rant for Mud Run Guide. And it was uh, the the fallacy of the runner's course. People used to get to a race and say, Oh, but that was just a runner's course. Like, Oh, it's a running race. <laughs> what did you expect to happen out there? That everyone was going to hold hands and decide we're going to power hike for the first three quarters of the race and then sprint it in? No, oh, it is a running race, but people used to rant against that. Used to say, oh, well, I wish we just had more like Killington because Temecula, that's just a runner's course. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was just this bizarre concept and people wanted to actively resist the concept of having to be a runner to be good at the sport. And now when we do athlete onboarding or we get messages from people, it's always the same thing where I've really started taking my running seriously, or I really want to maximize my running. I didn't run in high school or college and I'm just diving full into it. I want to learn all about it. That mentality did not exist back in the day. It was, I wonder how I can tweak my CrossFit or my EMOMs or my circuits to to get the most endurance out of it. And now people are like, all right, this is a running sport, not a running course. It's a running sport. And so we need to become runners who can also really, really be
0: good functionally. It's kind of shocking how long that's taken to get through some some people's heads, isn't it? It is. And yet I didn't even notice when the shift took place. Suddenly mm. it
1: was just everyone was talking in running terms. And, I, and it made me so happy. But I didn't, there wasn't one moment. It just suddenly woke up and felt like, yeah, this has been shifting and it has shifted now. People have embraced the fact that we got to run
0: carries included i mean 85 percent of a race is still running yeah. and the rest is carries and obstacles so yeah that's uh that's fair and that ratio hasn't really changed over the years has it no it hasn't changed people are just
1: better at all of it and so it feels like more of a running race because you used to be able to get to an obstacle or a carry and make up all the lost time and lost ground and people would crumble the the crumble rate is much less now and everyone can carry so it's It feels like the obstacles don't matter as much because everyone did the same thing you did, as they all got good at it because they were tired of being left behind. And the people that were always used to being better at obstacles say, Oh, they've just watered this race down. It's all running. Mm -hmm. No, other people just address their weaknesses. The obstacles are way harder than they used to be.
0: Oh, they are. Way harder. That's funny because you hear so many people bitching about how easy the obstacles are. Now, Battle Frog was really difficult. But that I didn't was- think it was that bad. I only did one. I didn't think it was that bad. Did you do a one lap or a two lap? Two lap? Okay. Well then maybe you're just a monster. I mean, their, their rig was pretty awesome, but like if you had any like aptitude as to how to approach it and some base amount of strength, like I never done a rig before. That was my first OCR race and I navigated it fine. Based on just like doing, I wasn't even training perfectly at the time. So, anyways, but we'll keep going. I
1: was just going to say that they beat you down with farmers' carries and things like that to get you yeah. tired. And then, but their rigs were never something crazy. They're nothing like the Conquer the Gauntlets or the Indian Mud Run or OCR World Championships. It's if you took a Spartan rig of today and a twister. And the Z Wall and plugged it back into 2013, 2014, 2015, people would lose their minds. It would be so much harder than anything anyone had ever seen. The only thing that is easier now than then is that they have taken Sprint, Super, and Beast rigs rather than all types of, of rigs right. get the same rig. So, yeah, Super and Sprint rigs are a little easier now, but those other obstacles that we used to have, the hanging obstacles, they pale in comparison to what the sport is now. We're just, we know them, we're used to them, and we're good at them. And that's why they feel easy to us.
0: Between battle frog and Spartan Race, by far the hardest obstacle, granted the conditions had something to do with it, would be like the monkey monkey twister monkey, a mm-hmm. length, duration, changing of body positions. I mean, some people made it look really easy, but I would still say that that Spartan obstacle or a cold, wet tyrolean or uh, a hanger at at Tahoe, when you can't feel your hands, I don't know if I've I've had harder ones than that in those conditions. So I think that the obstacles are plenty fine. And why does it have to be harder? Why why can't it be about efficiency and speed? Like, Does it need to be harder is better and more failability is better? Or can we not just appreciate the fact that Ryan Atkins can win the first U.S. National Series race of the year because he simply did the obstacles better than everybody else?
1: Yeah. And, and really, I don't think we can look at the elite fields to determine if the races are harder or not. You have to look at the open where you still get people who are fresh and new to it. And the failure rates are pretty much the same, maybe even uh, more so because of twister and monkey in the middle and things like that. Those, those failure rates haven't gotten better for the open wave. And at some obstacles they've gotten worse. It's just that the pros train them. No one used to train these things and that's why they're easier now. But I think there is a case to be made for changing the courses to make it more challenging for the elite field. But I think that that's what Spartan won't do. And I think that's what OCR Worlds will do. And that's why people struggle so badly there. I think it's two different two different aspects of the same sport judged in an entirely different
0: manner. Mm. Are there any other major differences between Spartan Race pre-2014 and Spartan Race today that you can think of? Leadership? Contracts, race style, obstacles, venues chosen, general feel of the venues—anything that you can think of. Yeah, they, a shift occurred at some point—a
1: shift away from finding the most epic of venues to finding the venues that paid them to come there. Yeah, and so, but that—that that kind of co- that just aligns with the shift that happened from Spartan as a people company to Spartan as a business, and as it became less easy to find out who's making which decision and where are they and have I ever even met that person. The same thing happened across the board. The sport changed with the company and I don't think we can say it's right or wrong. The the biggest overall change though is the level of preparedness of the athletes coming in. You have a lot of hungry people out there who are dedicating all their free time to getting good at this and back in the day there just weren't many people doing that.
0: Where do you see the sport going in that regard? If it sticks around and stays healthy um, financially, do you see that uh, this is going to continue to morph into even more of a monster? I do.
1: And we always waited for this new wave of athletes to take over, and it never happened. And so I now think it'll be the same consistent where every year one new guy, maybe one new girl – Comes on up and becomes, you know, the next Johnny or the next Rebecca Hammond, the next person, the next Leanne Wasteney the next person that comes in and is now a player in it. But we've still yet to see a whole group of athletes coming in in one year. And I don't believe that's happening. I think it'll just, you'll keep refining year by year. And in 10 years, it'll look different than it looks now. But no one year to the next will probably have this great big shift.
0: Yeah. And there's guys like me that come in and I was, 58th at world's year one and then you progress and there's guys that we don't even know of that took 40th last year that suddenly could pop in this year. We have guys like Mark Godet and Nick mm-hmm. Riker and even like a Rich Ryan who are that close away from breaking through and suddenly are a household name. And then next year, a few more get layered into that that pool and maybe an oldie but goodie comes back that we've forgotten about for a year or two. And mm-hmm. I think that's how it's gonna go. It grows one or two athletes at a time on the top end. A lot of people come and try them out and then they either disappear or they go back to the roads where they're comfortable and don't have to get beat up. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, man, well, we, we made it about an hour and 20 minutes chatting about Spartan of old versus Spartan of now Bracken. That's not bad. One thing I wanna point out about training philosophy
1: I think it's one portion of it has evolved right back to where it was in the beginning. When everyone first came over and was trying this sport out, it was an interval-based training style where the good runners had to learn how to run compromised and carry, and they did it in interval work because that's what they knew because they were runners. Mm -hmm. And the good strength athletes didn't want to go out for hour runs. And so they did Metcon work or CrossFit style that was interval based. And then we graduated into big, huge mountain runs and crazy ascents and descents and grinding on the treadmill. And there seems to be a trend the last few years or for sure the last year of people returning to really intentional interval based work. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how things are very cyclical in endurance training and in sports in general, but we are returning back to the, you have to be fast and you have to be efficient, but now it's paired with a greater holistic approach to the game founded around the real quality days. And at the beginning, it was all quality days. And now we're back to that just with better intentionality about it. So it's kind of cool to watch that.
0: Yeah. I think better literature has been written. I think better podcasts and media have come out to help guide people the right direction not just our own but things like science of ultra and and even like reinforced running with rich ryan's doing a good job and some other some other people are given we're having more access to good training knowledge yeah I i think we were we were really
1: lucky and fortunate and it was rare to find such unique athletes early in the sport in the first four years of its existence we found hobie Cody, Hunter, and Matt Novakovich. And those are four of the greatest athletes the sport's ever seen, three of whom have multiple world titles to their name. And all four have a really different training style. Mm-hmm. Hobie Call is the champion of the I run three to four times per week. Everything's quality. Everything's purposeful. I do my all my strength training, upper and lower body, as an endurance-based workout that takes the place of a run. And it's yeah. really unique. Hunter was the lift heavy, run fast, do crazy workouts and get by on having a huge engine built through tons of different modalities and being a freak also. Matt Novakovich was the person who introduced incline trainers to the world and he did 90 to 99% of his work at 20% or above on his treadmill in his basement. And then Cody trained like a college cross country runner combined with a mountain runner. And Mm -hmm. of those four, One of them is not unique, trendy, or sexy, and that was Cody's training. And yet, that's the training everyone's returning to right now, which is train like a college cross-country runner or trail racer combined with functional strength work. And Hobie and Hunter and Matt kind of got everyone off track for about a decade because they were superstars. Cody was not on social media. He wasn't talking about his training. And when he did, no one wanted to go run 70 miles a week in the mountains. Yeah. And now all you see is people flocking to the mountains to run 70 mile weeks and to do functional strength training.
0: Mm-hmm. You had other influencers, though, like Isaiah Vidal, who is the yeah. CrossFit king. And, but then you had John Yatskow, who is the quintessential runner. There were examples, but you are right, just setting the precedence. Yeah. Um, and I think those, those people are anomalies. I think the best way to train is still, as Cody, we're training. Right. If, and that's what people are getting back to. But for almost a decade, people wanted to latch on
1: to maybe there's a different truth out there. We can train just three days a week of running or we can just lift like a CrossFit bro every day and, and then still crush a 20 mile mountain race. Or I can just be on my treadmill every single day and I'll still be fine on the flats and the downhills. And all of those have some merits, but it's funny that the one that people wanted to avoid for the longest is now the trendy, popular, let's learn how to be mountain runners.
0: Well, I think of the top 10, 15, maybe even 20 at the world championships this year. And I start going down the list and I'm hard to find anybody in the top 15 off the top of my head that trains any other way. Maybe Kent, maybe, but he's still a, he's still a 70 mile a week guy in full, in full training mode. He's just throwing in some other Decafit style. He's probably the biggest outlier in that group. Mm-hmm. Other than him, I think everybody else is training uh, like the quintessential endurance runner, practicing functional strength in between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned we were maybe going to chat like I don't know some race fails or race stories. Do you have any any quick ones that you want to dive into and add to this fruitful conversation?
1: I, I almost feel like that's a conversation for another day. We can do a whole race story another day. We've gotten a whole episode out of this.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think we do have to do a race story episode without question um especially we're toying around with the idea of sort of doing an episode where we fill you in on like our takes on every single athlete in the sport Mm. Uh, not a trash talk episode but more a like behind the scenes this is what this athlete is about and like and this is how they train and this is what we know about them um all the top athletes you can think of um if you have an interest in that let us know uh, we're going to keep the negativity to a minimum in that conversation and more stick to the learning and beneficial points. But let us know if you have an interest in us bullet pointing pretty much all the studs that you know of. How do you want to add anything else to this? Ah, I hope people got a good, a good I don't know, view of, of the evolution of
1: this sport of obstacle racing. If they are runners listening to this podcast, I hope they get a, an appreciation or at least an understanding of of how this thing came to be. I think a lot of times we get lumped into the, well, we found something to do because we weren't good enough at at running. We just kept adding in new facets until we created a sport. And yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And and that's fantastic. Shouldn't everyone do that? Shouldn't everyone take their God-given gifts and match it to something that allows them to pursue it with joy. That's exactly what the sport has done. It's given people a new lease on life competitively and retroactively it's pulled people back to the running world. You have a bunch of meatheads and CrossFitters and soccer players and fighters and swimmers and bikers who are now reading Jack Daniel's running book or reading up on Lydiard's mm-hmm. base training. And so even if it's not the the standard path that the pure runner would ask for from a person, Everyone's kind of getting wrapped back up into the same community anyway. So I hope this was enlightening and it was kind of nice to take a trip down memory lane with you, Kirk.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, if it wasn't for this sport, I mean, we we wouldn't have a podcast, Bracken. You wouldn't. No, we we wouldn't, wouldn't have four creepy swords in your garage. There's nothing creepy about being able to cleave a man in half. Something a little bit creepy about that. But no, it's opened a lot of doors for people, giving people a chance to aspire towards something that... Uh, maybe it was a little aimless before in their physical and health pursuits. I think we're all lucky for that. So thanks for the walk down memory lane, Bracken. Thanks for holding my hand, Kirk.